Hello everyone and welcome to Malaria, Poverty and Politics. I'm your host Silas Majambere and I am excited to be with you again in this new year 2024. So before I start anything, um, Happy New Year to all the listeners. I hope this year is going to be better than the one we just finished. I wish you every success, peace and happiness in your home. Today, I have the privilege of talking to Carl Mannan. Carl is an economist working at the intersection of public, private and civil society sectors. He is a development practitioner with experience in health financing, private foundations, inclusive impact and sustainability. In this episode, we touch a range of points. Uh, we talk about the African Union transformation and what it means. We talk about funding, uh, public health. We ask uh, questions around health financing and whether the model we have today is geared towards uh, malaria elimination in particular. We uh, talk about different strategies that can be used for financing and uh, I'm taking home um, one of Carl's uh, mantra in the thinking around health and financing. Uh, in his words, we should think less of a disease conversation but have more of a transformation conversation. We talk about uh, tackling diseases of poverty and I ask him about decolonizing global health, what he thinks about it, and he has an interesting take and view of this particular phenomenon. So wherever you're listening from, I'm glad you have taken time to join me and to listen to this conversation. I hope it's going to be fruitful to you and instructive in some ways. Wherever you're listening from, welcome and enjoy. Karen Manlan, uh, good morning. Welcome to uh, Malaria, Poverty and Politics. I'm very grateful that you accepted uh, this invitation. How are you today? Silas, thank you. Uh, it's always good to be able to share knowledge with, uh, with others. I am well. And uh, malaria has been an important part of my career. So I've, I'm here because I... In, when I started working, um, I focused on HIV initially yeah. uh, as an intern. And then my first job actually was focused on helping an organization like the Global Fund to really uh, figure out how do they change the investment that they'd made in chloroquine. That was back in 2004. And you may remember the Lancet article. So... My job was basically to go through all the grants that uh, the Global Fund had signed at the time and to identify how much money had been allocated over the five years of the course of those grants to buy um, chloroquine so that the world will have a sense of the funding gap that was required to make the shift to ACT, the combination therapy that was then considered to be more efficacious. So in a way, malaria... Uh, and its ability to transform communities has been central to how my own career has evolved. Because 
the ability to to provide efficacious treatment was central to someone like me that did not have that doesn't have a medical background or yeah. but grew up in a family of uh, of, uh, of doctors and nurses so my my father was a medical doctor and my mother was a nurse so the understanding of disease and the implication in the transformation of society was very much present as I was growing up in Abidjan. Mm. Yeah, great. Uh, so we will talk about um, your professional career, but I wanted to press you a little bit on your personal one. Um, you just said your father was a, a medical doctor, your mother uh, a nurse. Uh, so in the African context, it's a well-off family in the, in the African context. My, my parents were not doctors or, or, or well, actually my mother was a nurse. Um, so there's a uh, something we share there, but you you grew up like how how was your growing up uh, in your family? How how did you not become a, a a medical doctor yourself when you have grown up in a in a family like that? So my parents were very open to the idea that this may not be the case, mm-hmm. and um, I remember I don't remember my age, but I remember in being to be going into my father's. Um, office at the, one of the main hospitals, teaching hospitals in Abidjan. He was a gastroenterologist. So yeah, I was in the room and him sort of getting that tube down, down the throat of, uh, of uh, the patient. Yeah. And I think he looked at my reaction and it was not a great one. You know, I just couldn't stand what I was seeing. Yeah. We never spoke about me becoming a doctor. But in hindsight, I think on that particular day, yeah. He probably accepted that this was not going to be the case. And on the other end, my mother, who uh, had a great influence on my life, always wanted me to become a banker. No, that was for her the epitome of success. And uh, it, it turns out that I actually was more of a social person. And you know, it's easy to understand. It's easy to understand, I think, because I grew up in the eighties when I started to form my own opinion of the world was in the eighties. And those were also the times when uh, the HIV epidemic started to actually hit communities around uh, Africa. And my father being a medical doctor, my mother being a nurse, a lot of the conversation that we will have around lunchtime or dinner were often around the lives that were not gonna be saved because back then the quality of treatment for HIV was not what it was today. Yeah. And so I grew up really tuned to the fact that lives matter yeah. and lives need to be saved. And my professional career has really been around my own ability to focus on how lives can be saved. But you touched, you touched on a point earlier in terms of yes, growing up in a good family. I would say, yes, I did grow up in a good family. It wasn't about the excess of financial resources, mm-hmm. but it was very much around the values that my parents felt were important for me and my siblings to really master. And those are basically filtered through my own personal life and the choices that I made from a professional perspective and also from a personal perspective. Um, and I think one of these values that uh, stayed with me is being of service you know, and remaining of service. That was very clear as we're growing up. And my parents were a good example of being of service. And I kept that with me as a way to continue what they started. You know, I lost both parents. Um, so you know, the, the ability to continue to be of service has been one of the best legacies that they, that they left with me, but also that they taught me and I could see from their own examples. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for that. 
extremely grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I, I think we will, um, the audience will understand your drive and your motivation to being of service through who you have become and who who you are and, and the type of work you're doing. I've, I've got connected to you by a friend, a common friend to us. Uh, I didn't know you before. I had heard about you on Visa, like the, the projects you are doing on Visa. Uh, the last time you were in Kigali, I believe, I, I was watching what was going on there. But um, so what I did after this friend connected us, I, I went to check on you, as everyone does on Google, <laughs> to find out who you are. And, and, and then Google took me to three places. So first to uh, the Mall Ibrahim webpage, and then it took me, obviously I went to search on you on LinkedIn and then uh, the first my project. So um, the, the LinkedIn profile says that you are a practitioner. That's how you are described. The first my project uh, describes you as, and I quote, um, I am a pilgrim whose purpose is to learn constantly in order to contribute to Africa's transformation. So can you can you explain to us who you really are? So you are a practitioner and you want to uh, constantly learn and, and transform Africa. So who, who you are uh, will be of interest to the audience. So tell us a little bit more about that. I think uh, both described the tension in, in being alive this, uh, during these times. Practitioner means that, you know, you need to be able to practice something, you know, and I think that I am a practitioner in development mm. and development can have sometimes a bad connotation, but ultimately what is everyone's role in ensuring that we are of service to the transformation of our countries, regions, uh, continent and the world. And being a practitioner allows one to be in that position because when you practice a certain trade, you have to continue to upskill yourself, upgrade your knowledge, and understand other parts of the ecosystem. So if I think about my own career, yes, my mother wanted me to become a banker, but I often said that I entered the bank through the back door, not as a banker, but through the, the social aspects of transforming community uh, when I was at the foundation of the bank. And then I continued now to be into financial services. And as a practitioner in development, being able to sit at the intersection of public-private and civil society is a unique gift. And I am fortunate to have been able to sit at that intersection for some time now and really draw from all those different experiences. The first my project was born out of the idea of having one space where I could put all the articles that I've written. I've not been very active recently, but it was really a repository of the ideas. And the reason why I've done this is because I had wished that I could have read what my father was thinking during these times. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And I've done it primarily for my for my children and the generation. Yeah. So that you know, when that day comes when I'm longer around, they have a sense of what I was thinking during that specific time when things were happening and what the ideas were. And most importantly, is a reminder to myself that I have to remain consistent between the things that I believe in, what I think, what I've written. Because the writing allows one to really be focused on what it can be, yeah. what he has been, and what it should be. You know? 
And I, I draw inspirations from many of the founding fathers of, of the African continent. Where if you think about younger leaders like Amilcar Cabral, mm-hmm. uh, Nase, you think of uh, uh, Uru Kenyatta, you think of uh, uh, in Tanzania we have uh, Julius. Nirere, Julius Nirere. They all wrote. So before they even came into power, you had a sense of exactly what they had in mind, what their ideas were. And I'm not in any way comparing myself to these great African leaders, but I drew inspiration from the fact that even today, you know, generations after generations can go and actually read what they were thinking at that time. Mm. And that for me is important. Yeah. It's important because as a practitioner, the only legacy that one has are those ideas that one believed in and really tried to work and exemplify them in the day-to-day uh, work and interaction with uh, other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I think um, the one thing that I've been really enjoying for this podcast is I get to meet people who who share in a in a very strange way share my life in a in a very different one. So you just spoke about your dad and wanting to um, wishing that you had written. So uh, my dad passed away, um, and the one thing I regret is not having been able to write about him when we he was alive. Um, so when I, I left my country, my, I'm originally from Burundi. I left my country in 2000 and actually 2000 to do my studies in in Europe. And when I was there, I, I, I thought about my dad's life and how he's fought his fight correctly as a man of integrity and all that. And I decided I would write about him. So the idea was I would go back home on holiday and and, and speak speak to him and record him without him knowing so that after that I'll, I'll write a book about him I never did that and that's something I really really regret right now um, but I've been talking to my brothers and we're thinking we might still have something to write and, and to say about him but he 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 was like an amazing person I mean my hero <laughs> I have to say you know I understand I understand yeah, yeah. so um you just mentioned a few things, and I, I think I will divert to that and then maybe swing back to the work you're doing. You you just mentioned great thinkers and great politicians um, of Africa who who have been really an example and role model for us. Um, and I have to ask you, as a, as an African, are you in any way involved in in the thinking about Africa transformation, where Africa is going? Um, what are your thoughts about pan-Africanism? Where, where are you in that in that sphere? Involved is um, depends on the degree. Yeah. In yeah. a way, uh, as an African, you are committed by default to the project. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as a professional and as a father, you you want to f- ensure that the next generations doesn't have to continue to. F- think about integration Mm -hmm. doesn't have to continue to think about crossing borders because the original project was around unification and we move away from unification to independence Mm -hmm. i live in a country today which celebrates unification in december the national days about unification Mm -hmm. and since i've moved here i've been thinking about what it could have been if our focus was on unification and not individual independence, country-specific independence. Mm. 
And, uh, and that's the direction that we are taking. That's a road that we are taking. And that's the road that moving from the AAU to the, from the OAU to the AU, the African Union, that's the path. Yeah. We have one unfortunate situation on the continent is that we are not very patient. Yeah. And we don't really understand the role of the African Union and what the African has been able to do and achieve since its inception. And when the Agenda 2063 was, was written, it was really about suddenly focusing our energy towards a common goal. Because remember, the, the first, the, the initial goal was about independence, not unification. But no, our forefathers had a reason why they focused on independence. So our role now is okay. How do we unify our vision? We have a common goal under Agenda 2063. And that goal basically says to us that we need to be one Africa. And being one Africa implies movement, uh, free movement of individuals. And the AFCFTA, for example, includes now free movement of uh, eventually goods and services. So there are examples of how focusing on unification after the independence is now the, the direction that we are taking. So taking that into, uh, into account, I think the Pan-Africanism ideals have to reflect in practice how the daily lives of individuals improve. Mm. So when you're talking about development, uh, we, we have to ensure that the women selling peanuts on the sides of the road, yeah. uh, the women at the border between um, Kenya and Uganda, or the women at the border between Togo and, uh, and Benin, or Togo and, uh, and Ghana, actually feels that the life and the life of the children are improving. Yeah. And that's really what it should be. And if each, each one of us, regardless of where we are on the continent or outside the continent, mm. are able to contribute to that project, I think we're making, we'll be making, we're making progress. Mm. And it doesn't have to be in the front page of the newspapers. Yeah. It has to be something that is done continuously, consistently, even in times when one doubts that it's going to ever be possible. Yeah, because if Nyerere, uh, Uru, Cabral, Nasser didn't believe in it, even at times when there was probably reasons to give up, we would not be here. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's really that what's important. And that's why I was referring earlier to the importance of reading what they were thinking about at that particular time in the history of a continent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really amazing thoughts, and I I I like that type of discussion, and I and I feel like we we could stay there for a while, and then we can move. <laughs> we can move back to the to the malaria global fund and other things. But on the same on the same issue, we just heard. I don't know if you followed. You probably have um, that Rwanda removed all visas for all African countries uh, and many other countries, which which really is great. And, and I think Rwanda is showing a really good model um, in, in, in how Africa should be. But today, um, I mean, you see what's going on in, in West Africa. Um, you originally from there, um, there's a lot of transform, transformation or attempts to transformation that are going on there, uh, political instability, um, do you, how do you assess those movements? Like, 
because there's there's the youth that is in the street all the time demanding change and then um the politics are not always following what what the youth is looking for is this where you you saying uh we are not as patient as we should be or um what what do you read with with the movement um of the youth the politics uh what's going on in africa today it's a difficult question and i'll tell you why i haven't lived in west africa for a good period of time so for five years when i was with the bank i lived in accra and i lived in domain and for a greater part of my adult life, I've been outside of, uh, of West Africa. So I read um, and I sort of hear comments here and there. And there could be an element of lack of patience. Okay, that could be one of them. It could also be the fact that our understanding of progress does not necessarily reflect the daily lives of individuals. You know? So you know, how, how does one find a way to translate massive investment in infrastructure into the daily lives of individuals. Yes, you can move, the movement of goods and services is better. But is that enough? Maybe, maybe not. The cost of living is increasing, but the cost of living increasing is a factor of many different elements mm. that may not necessarily be in the control of those that are accused of not being able to control it. Mm. So we live in a world that is intrinsically connected and the connection between the different parts of it may sometimes create a group of people that feel that they need a herd, not able to participate fully. And that's what we need to solve for. We need to solve for the ability of more and more individuals to feel that they are part of this Agenda 2063. Yeah. But when the institutions um, are not able necessarily to communicate in a way that people or the majority of people can actually understand that there is progress mm. on the continent. It's a struggle. So in West Africa, for a very long time already, individuals could move within ECOWAS mm. using their ID card, no need for a passport. That was possible. So what stopped the rest of the continent to learn from the experience in Western ECOWAS to apply the same principles to the rest of the continent? Yeah. So... I'll give you a, a personal example. When I left Abidjan in 1998, I moved to Harare in Zimbabwe. And I really felt that I was in a different part of the world. Yeah. Even though I was on the same continent, even though I was moving from one African country to another African country, I just didn't necessarily in the beginning connect. And I thought about it many years later. And I asked myself, what was I learning in my, at school? in the public school that I attended in Abidjan. Very little about the rest of Africa. Yeah. So when the European created Erasmus to have young Europeans move around the continent, part of it was to solve for this problem, to make sure that the next generation of Europeans actually know each other. Mm. When we, I mean, I was not a big sports person when I was growing up and I still am not, but I know of classmates that used to travel around West Africa and maybe other parts of Africa to go and play games. So if you think about things that can unify people, sports is one of them. Yeah. And today on the continent, there's a massive transformation in women's football. Mm -hmm. And it's actually fascinating to watch because most of uh, African women playing football are local. Yeah. There are very few that are playing internationally. 
Okay. I can't even think of a name now. Mm. What it means is that African women's football could be a very interesting bet on the exercise of unifying people around a common cause. Mm. And what can I do as an individual to make sure that this woman that I know in my neighborhood that plays football, I can support her because maybe she, she's running a small business because most women football on the continent are not professional athletes. There are two countries on the continent that are pushing that direction, Morocco and South Africa, but the rest are not. Yeah. So to your point around uh, the, the discrepancy between what we see as potential for transformation and the, the, the anger that we often see, it is real, and I, I can't deny it. Mm. At the same time, I think some of it can be resolved by ensuring that more people understand where we are going. I remember one of my former boss delivered an interesting speech, and that image stayed in my head, yeah. where he was talking about the fact that when you are driving, and there's a, there's a, a minibus or taxis, as we call them sometimes, in front of you, there's often a sign that says that if I don't... If you don't see my mirrors, I also don't see you. Mm. So we're often in a situation where the people that are behind, that are following the leader, may not necessarily be seen. Yeah. And it's not because the person does not want to see them, but there's a, there's a situation which that really may not allow that to happen until maybe there's an accident. Mm. And it does happen. So the point I'm trying to make is that we, we need as individuals to really ask ourselves first a question. Have I taken all the steps to fully understand what is happening in the ecosystem. And if I'm not understanding, am I willing to actually ask the question? Maybe disagree, but disagreement doesn't mean that you always need to go and challenge by some form of violence, challenge by some form of destruction, because we all in this together and whatever is destroyed, it means that it is most likely the funds that somebody is paying from a taxation perspective to support it. And, you know, we started talking about health. And for many years, I struggled with the concept of free healthcare. Mm. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Somebody's paying for it. Yeah. It is tax paid. So it cannot be, maybe it's not the tax from your country, but the donation from international development is usually secured through taxation. So somebody is paying for what you say that is free. And what are the implications of thinking that, okay, what you're doing is free? So if the tax base in many of, of our countries is small, it implies that many people feel that they are not necessarily paying for it. Therefore, the cost of destroying whatever they are destroying is not necessarily felt upon by them. But it is. Mm. It is. Yeah. And remember, governments have limited resources. Regardless of which government, they have limited resources. So I, I tend to think that the, the situation that many of these young people find themselves into may result in them protesting. Mm. At the same time, I think there's value in ensuring that there is an appreciation for the fact that not everything seems or is as simple as it appears to be. Yeah. yeah. It's not. I agree. So I think that's a, a perfect segue into the, the part on health and, and financing, um, which personally I have to say that's the part I understand less in, in, in terms of uh, I'm an entomologist. I study mosquitoes and I try to kill mosquitoes against malaria. So that's that's the part that I understand better. Um, the funding part is is the one that frustrates me more uh, because there is never enough money to do everything we want. Um, but I, I want us to discuss a little bit. I mean, you you're a banker. You have a banking background. Um, I want us to discuss about financing for health in Africa. Um, 
I think if I read correctly, you have done some work with Global Fund or or, or are still. Right. Um, right. So what what is your take on the current uh, financing for health, uh, particularly if you think about Global Fund uh, or other major funders who are external and are trying to support Africa, Africa's health? Is this... Um, what was the sustainability of this type of model, uh, given um, the money that comes is aid uh, or um, some type of uh, bilateral uh, support? Is this sustainable for Africa? Is this do we have to rethink uh, fine health financing in Africa, or is this the the best model we can get today? So there are many elements in your in your question which I can, uh, I expect it to be. I don't think it's about financing health. And that's what we've been doing. Mm. It should have been, and should always be about creating opportunities for individuals to take care of their own health. Mm -hmm. And the subsidy model of health has probably reached a point where we should ask ourselves a question, how much more progress can we make by keeping this model alive? When someone is employed, there are certain things that one may not have to ask them to address. For example, vaccinating the children when they are born. Mm -hmm. okay, that's, way, that's, a, that's a baseline of health, mm -hmm. making sure that the children have access to the right type of vaccination. So if we then change the conversation and say, how do we ensure that the majority of people have access to decent work? By having access to decent work, would they be in a position where they think about their health yeah. and their family's health as a key component of continuing to be able to be contributors to the economy of the countries? But the way we've been looking at it, we have made health in itself a standalone project where organizations will fund specific diseases. And then you will have some of the diseases that where science has given us all the tools to eliminate. We're still struggling with them. I'll think about the neglected tropical diseases. There's nothing that science can do because we already figured out how to solve them. But a lot of these diseases are diseases of poverty. And you focus your life on, uh, on mosquitoes. When the U.S. eliminated mosquitoes in the southern states, I don't think they were only chasing mosquitoes. And you have the expert, so you can tell us more about it. And the U.S. Center for Disease Control was born out of that work Mm. of eliminating malaria in the southern states. So we know how it's done. It was not just chasing mosquitoes. It was improving the ecosystem. And improving the ecosystem meant that you could drain the swamps. Mm. You could remove the places where these continues to breed. So one can ask the question, how much of the funding that is made available is not only focused on treatment or prevention? So if you think about mosquito uh, malaria, on one hand, you have the mosquito nets that are not produced on the continent. There was some uh, work in, in Tanzania to produce some of them, but the majority are actually produced outside of the continent. If you look at the pharmaceutical and health products that are used, they're not produced on the continent. So we continue to replicate a model that may not necessarily have delivered the kind of transformation that we wanted. Yeah. So what if the model was really about saying, we will ensure that the mosquito nets that are required are produced on the continent. 
what would it take if a pharmaceutical and health products that are required are produced on the continent? And what kind of value chains we would we be able to create to ensure that the, the ecosystem is not about fighting malaria, but is about giving more people the opportunity to take care of their health should they be affected by malaria or should they be affected by any other diseases that they come across. Mm. So what I'm arguing for is probably a conversation around less of a disease conversation, but more of a transformation conversation mm. for which disease and health are just one component. Of it. But as long as we continue to look at diseases as a standalone with some form of integration, because I think there is some form of integration, it would be hard to solve for and ensure that all these diseases are no longer part of the equation. Mm. Yeah. But it's not the model. If you look at the, the, the model, it's one way funds are being raised mm. with uh, interesting indicator of lives saved, which I used to uh, challenge my, my m and &E colleagues in my former roles yeah. and asking them, okay, this life that has been saved, if a person is uh, facing a different disease yeah. and they pass on, are we still saved that life? And the, the, of course, they looked at me with uh, interesting eyes, yeah. with some form of understanding, but at the same time, that's a metric that we, that we have accepted, that it's about saving lives. But what about creating jobs? Yeah. Because it's independence in solving for your health mm. that is critical. Yeah. It's not running for to a health system that is very strong on three diseases and maybe weak in other diseases yeah so it's it's very interesting i i, I love this conversation uh, part of the reason is we agree <laughs> so my career has always been in malaria so that's the part that i understand better and i look at financing political decisions through that particular lens um there is so much going on that should change, to say the least. Um, but the, I want to come back, particularly on the on the issue of creating a self self financing system, rather than aspiring for more funds to come our way, but to actually look at a way that allows Africans, African countries, to self finance in terms of in terms of uh, disease control, in terms of wealth. And you touch a point on poverty. I want to give you, I mean, you know that, uh, but I want to mention the issue of malaria uh, being a disease of poverty. Everyone knows that um, it's a cycle of poverty. The, the poorer people are, the more they are at risk of malaria, the more they are at risk of malaria, they become poorer. So it's something that goes, goes on for a long time. And my debate has always been since 2000, I think 2007, eight, when... Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came back again on the issue of malaria eradication and elimination. Um, my question has always been everything that we are fronting in terms of treatment, prevention, are commodities that we source from outside, as you just mentioned. There is nothing or almost nothing that is made, made on the continent. But at the same time, we know that this is not the way the world has solved malaria. We have examples in Europe, we have examples in, in the Middle East, we have examples in the US. There's no one who relied on nets, drugs, prevention in that sense, and 
got rid of malaria, but we know also what they did, and it's not out of reach. Uh, so they did drainage, uh, they did uh, environmental management, they moved houses away from swamps to higher ground, they screened the houses, and they had a good health system. All those things are possible in Africa, they are doable. Uh, even with our own population, draining a swamp, you don't need uh, someone from the West to come and tell you how to do that. Absolutely. But it's never been the priority. And this is where I, I fall into a little bit of um, conspiracy theories that I shouldn't get into, I know. But uh, it, it always drives me into why are we doing this? Like, why, why do we focus on things we know? Like, commodities will not solve malaria to elimination stage. But still, that's what we do, and that's what we ask money for. We any every country is asking money for buying more bed nets, buying more drugs, buying more of this, unless tackling the the main issue, which is poverty. So uh, it's a disease of poverty, and in my view, all interventions should be driven towards that. Um, having a, a human being that is well off and that is able to make a decision whether they want to buy a drug or not or, or whether they want to do anything about their health rather than being in this on this um, treadmill or or, or 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 train where there's always a need we ask for a commodity and in two years later or three years later we have to ask for the same thing the net will not last more than well they say three years in fact it's one and a half years um, yeah. but we will ask more and more. So how do we get off this um, this train and, and start thinking differently? Because I think it's it's in the thinking more than in the money, because everyone is saying there's not enough money. There will never be enough money. But is, it, yep. is money that is available used for the right things, I think is the question. Um, there'll always be tension on what countries may think that they need and what the general consensus about what should be done will be. Uh, I had a own interesting experience in challenging a little bit that sort of uh, positioning uh, when I was running one of the countries in my previous um, roles. And it came to a point where the discussion was around how much do we get a country to really focus on what they think that they need versus what we think that they need. But there are systems that have been put in place. One of them by one of these large organizations is around bringing uh, partners from different uh, st different stakeholders around the same table to sort of agree on what the proposal is going to be. And it's been an interesting exercise in having a national conversation on what it means. Mm. But there are certain guidelines, there's a certain m and framework, and so on and so forth. So, it's not an easy one to navigate. And I think some of the countries in East Africa might have been a little bit more smarter in how to leverage these funds to address some of the national priorities. Uh, Ethiopia has been very good at having in place a community health uh, program. Yeah. And the results of having the community health program were clear. Uh, Tanzania has been very good at building a network of uh, central medical stores. Know, really having, but sometimes we just have to go and look at the composition of some of these entities, mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you can go and have a look, for example, at the composition of a private sector delegation to the global fund. 
and the majority are manufacturers. And maybe what they think is important may not necessarily be what others may think that is important. No. So in this context of governance, some of it is understanding how one can slowly shift the way it's been considered, what is being decided. And when we have the opportunity to either run this organization or we have the opportunity to be in the room where decisions are made, is to ensure that progressively, continuously, we bring those voices. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't think it will necessarily change over time. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, no, actually, I don't think the pace of change is necessarily what one may want. Yeah. But it is possible. You know, mm -hmm. And I've seen examples on the continent where that conversation around how it could be done differently has happened and there's been sort of a good ear that has listened to make sure that there is a shift. But again, at the beginning, I spoke about unification. And as long as we continue to think of solving these problems within the context of our domestic borders, we miss the opportunity, or we actually fail to understand that mosquitoes don't have any passports and they don't have nationalities. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> they, they cross those uh, borders and they continue to damage uh, communities as fast as possible. So part of the solution lies in our ability to ask ourselves simple questions. The US CDC was created as a result of the elimination of malaria. The Africa CDC became prominent following um, uh, COVID-19. You know, it had some elements were being shaped at the time of uh, Ebola in West Africa in 2014. But, you know, COVID-19 really gave it that sort of uh, position. But beyond being an institution, are we able to learn from the other centers for disease control yeah. and ensure that the conversation about health is not confined to the realms of health specialists? So it's yeah. really broadening the opportunity for this conversation to happen. Yeah. And understanding that, really, if I am a bednet manufacturer, I'm a producer of pharmaceutical health products. My objective is to make sure that those become available. So from that perspective, this is the best solution available to solve this problem. If I am the head of planning for a country, I can say yes, partially, but I have another problem, which is stunting, yeah. because a lot of my, my future workforce is going to be stunted. Therefore, all the projections that I have in terms of the ability to transform my economies do not exist. So managing a country, running an organization is not an easy exercise because you always have to make choices. But the most important for me is to look at the choices that are on the table and ask a very simple question. Would this get me to where I said that I'll get to? Mm. In the time that is required for my people to believe that I'm able to lead the transformation. Yeah. If not, what changes do I need to make? what conversation that do I need to make to ensure that I can have this very honest conversation with those that have resources that I need at that particular point to say yes and yes for what you're proposing mm -hmm. and these are some of the options that we should be considering because I have sufficient evidence. Yeah. Okay, So that's why sometimes we fail. We have an intuitive sense that this is not going to work but you don't have the data to back it up. Yeah. So the language of the world 
is numbers. Yeah. Being in the financial services system, being in the health system, if your numbers cannot tell us the direction, then it's not going to work. Yeah, great. So uh, thanks a lot, Carl. I, I think um, you're, you're wiser and much more patient than I am. Uh, than I am. <laughs> That's for sure. Because you talk about issues that get me agitated and you say them in a very posed and calm way. Um, but I, I, I just mentioned them again so that uh, I confirm we are on the same line. So my the, the creation of this uh, podcast really, so the title is Malaria, Poverty and Politics, um, because, well, I know more malaria than other things I said, as I said before, I know it's linked with poverty. And I know it's not just an issue of health specialists, as you just mentioned, there is a lot of politics around it, financing, um, and many things around it. Um, so there is this issue of um, agenda setting, who makes decisions about what happens in Africa. And um, but uh, people have been calling for decolonizing global health. Uh, and it's it's a buzzword and, and people use it a lot. What's your thinking about uh, these movements about agenda setting, local or localization of decisions, um, decolonizing global health? Does that make sense? Do, do we do we get somewhere with that, or, or should we have a different strategy uh, altogether? I I struggle with the concept. I I read about the movement, and I I I ask some of the people that I know in that space. A very simple question. Is it possible to convince other funders to come to party and basically domestic funders? Mm -hmm. And that's probably where the issue lies in our ability to convince Africans that have a little bit more means to make this health for all an issue that they believe in they want to solve. And are we willing to support our universities in a way that the work that is being done is elevated at the right level. There used to be a time when Makerere University yeah. and other universities on the continent were celebrated. Even my own country, University of Abidjan, where my, my parents studied. So it's, um, it's not just about decolonizing health. It's really about ensuring that we provide the space for our scientists, we provide them with the right level of resources, and we actually read what they say and what they do. So if we're not paying much attention to the work that they do. So I'll give you an example. Miriam, Professor Miriam Warren, well-celebrated Kenyan scientist. We really put to fore the fact that if it doesn't happen in the community, it doesn't happen in the nation. Mm. How many of us know about Professor Miriam Warren? And how many of us have actually taken to heart the things that she's been teaching us? Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I understand when Amilcar Cabral, when Nasser and all these young leaders, and we have to remember that they were very young mm -hmm. when they came to power. Unfortunately for uh, Cabral, he didn't. But if you think about Nasser and all this, and um, they were very young. Mm -hmm. And they directed the energy to a transformation that also required us to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Mm. And I think part of what's missing in the argument, in my view, is the answers to the difficult African questions. I like balanced approaches. Mm. 
Yeah, so I don't disagree with what they're trying to say. I'm just asking myself a question. How much of this is also pushing for an African narrative to the same debate mm. with a question to our own uh, colleagues, friends, and that have today the ability to support, but choose for a number of reasons not to do it. And to be fair, some of them might be supporting an alternative way of advancing the same agenda, but they're not vocal by choice, and they choose to do what they can to advance that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because what you're raising here goes back to our earlier, earlier part of the conversation around young people demonstrating in the streets. Mm -hmm. The activism is online, is in conferences. And I, I, I follow and I read the arguments. I respect, I, but I, I'm always critical of our ability as Africans to also interrogate how much equity are we willing to put in mm. to advance that. Yeah. So I don't think I necessarily gave you the answer that you were looking for. No, I'm, you did. <laughs> you, you did. <laughs> I, I like, um, so I've, I've followed the movement, I've listened to, and, and as I said in, in my question, activism is always a mix of truth and exaggeration. Uh, so, and, and maybe one-sided approach to things because you're trying to drive a particular agenda and then you, you don't look back and see, or where is my responsibility? Where is the African responsibility? Where Where is our local funding? Uh, where is what we're doing? What's our narrative? So no, I, I really thank you for, for your approach and, and, and your view. As I said, you, you're much wiser and much more uh, patient in, in analyzing different things. So that's that's very welcome. So I don't want to abuse of your time. Uh, we've uh, almost passed the hour um, of conversation. So I want to draw towards the, the conclusion. Um, so you, you've been talking about most of the things you say, you also mentioned transformation. You've mentioned transformation more than two or three or four times in, in, in this conversation. So I want you to to say something about that. Um, what what in your mind is in Africa transformed? Uh, what what are the, the few things that should happen, and how would Africa look like in your in, in your view if we are transformed the way you think? The first is redefining what we believe transformation looks like, and if we are thinking about someone in a rural area where the majority of Africans still live. Transformation for them means access to clean water, access to energy, access to education for the children, access to clean air, and so on and so forth. So it's about transformation is about the decency of being able to live where you are by choice. Mm. People migrate, and interestingly enough, the richer a country becomes, the more people migrate. Yeah. It's counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but for you to move, you need money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that implies that the continent is transforming, and we're not always good at documenting that transformation. Yeah. So when you then ask me, what does transformation look like? I'll always indicate that it depends. Mm -hmm where you are in society, what are your aspirations, and what do you want to become? So if I think today of 
what does transformation look like for my children's generation? Mm. The simple answer is that I don't know. But all I know is that my children's generation needs to receive better education than my generation. Because that has been a consistent element of countries that have transformed successfully. The education system played a pivotal role in ensuring that individuals can adapt to circumstances and think beyond what they see, what they think, and imagine what the future could be for others. That, for me, is transformation. So because we don't have enough data on the continent, we tend to rely on measures like GDP mm -hmm. as an indicator of transformation. But if you are in a rural area, again, where a farmer suddenly has access to financial services on a mobile device, and he or she can receive the money from the cocoa, from the yam, from the peanuts, or whatever that they produce and they want to sell, it changes the ability to connect to the digital economy. Mm -hmm. So how, how are we ensuring that our capabilities to ensure that everybody has access to the internet becomes an interesting indicator of transformation? Mm -hmm. Because with access to internet, I don't have to be necessarily in town. Mm. I can be wherever I can be, as long as I can connect to what I need to do. Mm. And internet give access to markets. So transformation, if it's from the point of view of a farmer, it might mean that I should be able to sell what I'm producing to somebody who's sitting not close to me, maybe in a different continent, different country, that I can show him or her the quality of my products using technology and have the ability to sell it. So I don't think it's a static exercise yeah. where we say we have improved infrastructure, but which infrastructure are we talking about? The visible infrastructure or the invisible infrastructure? Yeah. And my last point on this is that the most important element of transformation is invisible social contract that exists between communities, either in a country or regional continent, because that might define whether or not I want to support you, I want to collaborate with you, or I want to remain within the constraints of my borders and be successful on my own and maybe figure out what the rest wants to do. It's a constant exercise. Yeah. At an individual level, and to go back to where we started, when I decide that my headline on LinkedIn is pra practitioner, mm. it's because I want to remind myself every time I look at this profile that I still don't know enough. Yeah. So I am not what the title that I have at the moment is. Mm. I am what I will become by knowing a little bit more every day. And I can only become that by continuing to practice. Mm, that's cool. And that's what this headline is about. It's about yeah. reminding me that I have to continue to practice and learn every single day. Yeah, great. Yeah, so um, I have to thank you because you have helped me practice today. So I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, become a practitioner by chatting with you, spending an hour with you. So I, I'm very, very grateful for your time. So I, I'll, I'll give you a last one and then you you can tell me if you have something else you wanted to to share that I didn't touch upon. So why should we have hope in Africa? This is really what every single person living anywhere in the world has hope. Mm. It's universal. It's not an African thing. Specifically, if you think about um, Africa and why should people have hope, it's because every day millions of Africans wake up and make a choice despite the circumstances to do something good. And that is important because they can choose to wake up in the morning and do something bad. 
and it's not the majority who's doing bad things. Like in every other society, there are people that do things that we qualify as bad. But under the, when you're talking about hope, there are a few things that come under hope. One of them is faith. And you have to believe in something which is higher than yourself. Mm. So that every day finds you in a better place than you were the day before. Under hope, you also have life. Mm. Because you cannot hope when you're dead. Yeah. Uh, under hope, you have caring, sharing. It's an interesting word because it's um, it elicits action. For you to be hopeful, you need to do something. And I think today there are millions of Africans that every day are doing something. We are just not very good at documenting collectively what all these young people are doing around the continent because we are often limited by those that are online. Yeah. We don't think about those that are offline. Mm. Of a young boy that will be helping his mother that is selling porridge on the side of the road. And when I used to live in Lomé, every morning I watched this young boy before going to school, coming with his mother in the street corner. He was selling porridge. And after some time, he will leave and go to school. But we are unable to document that for this young boy that sees his mother every single day working to help him become a better person, she has instilled in him what hope looks like. Yeah. And that's a key part. That image is vivid in my head. Yeah. Because at the time when I was watching that young boy, I was living away from my family. So in a way, I was watching that young boy and thinking about my own and asking myself, am I giving hope to this young boy that I have as a son? Mm. So that's really what it's about. Yeah. It's about the ability to acknowledge and recognize that it's not always the way we think about it. And that every single parent aspire to ensure that their children continue to live in the hope that it will be better. Yeah. And I'm a product of that. Or what my parents, by focusing the entire career on health mm. and trying to make sure that people have better health for whatever they need to do, can do. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, I, I told you when I was researching uh, who you are, I, I saw that you studied philosophy. So, and, and it does... Yeah. It does come out when you are talking and, and thinking. So I hope, Carl, that we will have another time to chat. Uh, there's so much that I would want to learn from you or to, to understand from you. We didn't talk about your success in career because you are indeed a very successful person. Um, but I'm conscious of the time and I'm, I'm hoping this is this will be a good reason for you to come back on my podcast and then we can talk about more of your work and, and what you're doing today. Whenever you invite me, I'll make time. I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you decided that I had something to share and you invited me. So I'm happy to, to come back when the time is right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Carl, for your time. I wish you a very pleasant day forward and keep the transformation going, the unification of Africa. That's something I'm hearing from you and I'm, I'm part of it. So hope we, we stay in touch. Well, thank you so much, Silas, and uh, all the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you uh, for taking the time to listen to my conversation with Carl Mannan. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And please consider following this podcast on your favorite podcast player. Follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at MalariaPolitics. Until we chat again, Happy New Year once again, love mercy, act justly and walk humbly.